Welcome to SeaWorld, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about new media. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservative based in Kenmarlandshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Hello. I don't know why I've taken to slightly sing-songy the first bit. <laughs> it's I sing really song apologize. Is, it's, it's developed over a number of years, that's why. <laughs> yeah. Mm, apologies. <laughs> um, t- today we're going to talk about... I called it like new media in my head and in the spreadsheet. I've been calling it new, me- new media, but I'm not sure how much that actually means. <laughs> really. Yeah, no, exactly. So um, maybe we should think about this as kind of um, seeing and hearing conservators. Oh, yes. As opposed to reading them. So, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, to explore this topic, we've got a special guest host with us. Would you like <gasps> to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Lucy Branch and I am a sculptural and architectural features conservator specialising in bronze. And um, it's a really good job that you didn't call it new media when you asked me to come along because I don't think I'd have understood that. (laughs) (laughs) I might have said no. It's a wish-washy thing, isn't it? But hello and welcome. Thank Thank you you for coming on. Thank you very much. I've been listening to the show for ages and ages. Yeah, it's great to be able to join you guys. It's lovely to have you. And I mean, one of your superpowers is that you are also a podcaster. Although I haven't got nine seasons under my belt as yet. The, the, the key word there is yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I host a podcast called Sculpture Vulture. It's such fun. Part of my work is dealing with sculptors and I always have these fantastic conversations with them. And I always think, oh, I wish somebody had mm. recorded that. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. You know, we talked about this kind of in the contemporary art episode that I hadn't realised how much collaboration you can do with artists because I don't really work on like living artists' things. That isn't same usually a thing that I do. So there's this beautiful dialogue between, you know, artists and conservators that I was just not privy to. And this is kind of like being privy to that. And it's just like, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. And yeah, I... Yeah, it kind of I is. Mean, I mean, if you get the nice ones that are really helpful, <laughs> like, and then you get the other ones that you get some and you're like um right so we're going to be doing some conservation work on your sculpture and they say yeah I've decided I ha- I made it the wrong color I've decided I want to make it red you're like uh no <laughs> and, and then they won't talk to you because you know they're sort of they, they won't talk to you because you don't want to change it to red <laughs> <You're> like, wow <laughs> so I haven't had any of those ones on I have disinvited them Oh, I, I feel like may, maybe everyone can relate to, let's say, clients or colleagues like that, though, where it's like, yeah. could you just... No, no that's Could you very change not... it entirely, please? No. No, no I can't. <laughs> could you make it look really new? No. no. <laughs> it was such a brilliant thing for CPD as well, because that's always been such a great love of mine as, as professional development, learn, carrying on learning. And the thing is that if you don't have something that you have to come to like a a deadline with so I know there's going to be an interview coming up so I get to do research on you know people that I may not necessarily work with and things like that and that's that was one of my CPD goals years ago and I was thinking you know I'm just not getting there I'm not actually making this happen so in a sense the podcast as much as it's fantastic to share it with the world has also been this great thing because it's made me do something that I did want to do but it just was never urgent so it never happened (laughs) 
That's a really good way of thinking about it. I, I really like that. It's definitely worked for me, although, you know, fitting it in around a normal uh, conservation practice and things like that has, you know, has, has its challenges. We've had a few moments like that, haven't we, Jenny? Where we've just yeah. thought, this is that uh, I can't just, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> how, do we, how do we make this work? <laughs> I think you and Oakley, at least we can rely on each other a little bit, where it's like, oh God, I just can't. Can you help? And like, we prop each other oh, yeah. up. <laughs> I'm kind of envious that you can share your podcasting with someone. <laughs> you you guys have got a lovely collaboration and the thing is that actually being in you know I run my own company but it is it's a family business and it's a little bit of an island when I go um, into institutions and I see how many people there are with similar interests and maybe they're not exactly what you do but there's something you know wonderful to be able to have a, a wider group that you can share that with and that's something maybe an independent practice you get less of and so in a way you know, the podcasting as well kind of gives me that. But um, it would be nice to be able to share it. <laughs> the work, at least. <laughs> but it is is notable that a podcasting is totally something you can do on your own. It doesn't mm. have to be a team sport. It is fun if it is, but it doesn't have to be. Because I'm thinking of, um, like, the, there are loads of good solo podcasts. And I know there, there's the uh, the Future Conservatives podcast, which just started, which is run mm-hmm. by a student. I need to listen to that. I'm very glad that there are more conservatives podcasting. That, yeah. That is now a thing that we can see. And it's not just a conservative featured on a podcast or like it's not a one-off like you know people are dedicating time to it and i'm super pleased to see it and by the way do let us know if there are more ones out there yes please i'm really pleased to see that people are using the medium because it doesn't have to be expensive it does Mm. take time that is of course the thing that that we that we know a little bit in the preamble to this episode which you guys don't get to hear um we kind of talked about podcasting as being a body of work which i thought was a really nice point that you brought up lucy well i think that um you know you look at your cv and you look at maybe the things you've worked on but this is an it is another form when you curate your notes or when you have your audio files all in one place and you see it all together and you know it it may not necessarily be a um that part of the work may not be an income stream per se, but I do count it as my body of work. And it's not so easy to sort of reference in in other ways, but um, it's one of the things that makes it an incredibly satisfying means of of putting your time into something because um, it's there and it's there forever, um, what one would hope, but certainly, um, uh, certainly there for the long term. So could you describe a typical episode for us, please, for the listeners? Um, So my episodes are interview based generally. And um, this is something that I'm going to take some risk with next season and and maybe mix it up a bit. Um, I know, basically, they are interviews, about half hour interviews with a sculptor who is working and displaying in public spaces. And I love large objects. That's my thing. I work in bronze and the majority of what we do is large. I'm not just interested in like sort of that kind of question of, you know, what does your work mean? It's more Mm. actually about um, a lot about creativity and working as what I would call a creative, which I count conservation as. And I know that we're not maybe... You know, we're not poets necessarily, but I feel like there is a huge amount of creativity. And when you think about a kind of 
icon standards about how we're supposed to reflect on our work and how we're supposed to, you know, think laterally and critically. And this kind of concepts are all things that are in creative businesses. So I want to know from them, like, how they stimulate their work, how where they're getting their ideas from, what the highs and lows of that work is. So at the end, after I've had a chat with them, I kind of do a little bit of a roundup as a conclusion, kind of reflecting on some of the things they say, because some of them say things which are so relevant to, you know, any creative business, but particularly if you're maybe an independent company. That that was kind of, I suppose that was my interest. So that's why I've kind of gone in that direction. The great thing about ending a season is you can ask your audience, like, what do you want to know more about? And guess mm. what they all want to know more about? Conservation. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. What protective coatings should we be recommending for mm-hmm. our sculptures? What kind of issues? Oh, I found this issue on my sculpture, but I'm sure it's relevant to other people. And I suddenly thought, why am I not talking about conservation? <laughs> so next season, there's going to have to be there's going to be a segment in uh, many of the episodes about sculptural conservation because my audience tends, you know, they've got a direct investment in their sculptures. Mm. They want mm. to know how what to recommend their clients, and and so that was really obvious. I don't know why it didn't hit me before. No, that's super interesting. I mean, it's always interesting seeing what. A, why people listen, and also kind of how much knowledge they want shared and how much knowledge you want shared. Like that's a that's a balance to strike. And I think that's a really beautiful thing, actually. Yeah, but it actually, it, I don't know, it's an obvious thing because I, talking about media, I, I run an online course and mostly for my clients. So the kind of people that come to me that need their sculptures looking after, they They have these huge responsibilities. Some of them are looking after enormous collections and they have no conservation knowledge at all because they come from local authorities or they they may be more of a business kind of mind or facilities managers. And so I created the course for them. And so actually me teaching sculptors who are also not conservation trained about what to recommend for their sculpture. It's a real no brainer. I should have thought of it. But, <laughs> but you know, the penny did drop eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it would be interesting for obviously for conservators who are generalists as well, though, because I'm thinking, well, I, I wouldn't know what to do with quite a lot of sort of sculptural things. And though I'm an I consider myself an objects conservator when whenever it's in inorganic I do have to look things up <laughs> so I wonder if sometimes it can be rare <laughs> for um, conservators to be sort of interested in the the origin of the artwork and the the creative process of the artist so having a podcast segment of and this is now information that a conservator can physically take away for their you know daily practice it's a sounds like a great way of encouraging people to be more sort of interested in the whole piece if that's what you're offering yeah and Mm. um i think that one of the fantastic things about different mediums that we are able to work in these days as conservators is it's so much easier to provide information. Like I would be daunted 
to try and sit down and write a very academic text. But I can chat about it and I know that my information's useful. It may not be publication worthy always, but there's something to say there. And I think being able to get it out there into the world, it's useful to people. So I know you're doing a little bit of good in the world. (laughs) I feel like that's something that's really come up for me personally in my career that and during podcasting that it's not everything needs to be as big a deal as an academic article and a lot of what I'm reading about when I want when I want to find something out like advice on how to do this or how to do that I will read an academic article because that's often where some of the information is but just a sort of description and photographs and you know a chat essentially about the process would be just as useful, if not more useful to me. And then someone, then what we've been aiming for for our podcast is essentially just this is information that's useful to people and interesting to people, but it's way not academic necessarily. (laughs) These new forms of of media that we have got um, available to us means that I feel like conservatives spend a lot of their time sort of exchanging their time for money, which I know, I know everyone does. But what I mean is it's all it's quite per hour sort of work. Whereas I, I really like the idea of moving towards this thing where this idea that you can do something once and you can get paid for it forever. And I know that it's not all about money, but I have spent hours and hours and hours on phones to clients talking to them about their particular bronze problem and Mm. I feel like you know what there is a huge audience out there that's probably got exactly the same problem and why I've while I've spent that time speaking to that one person I could have helped 500 people and so Mm -hmm. there's this kind of this idea that we can evolve towards a slightly different model I think for conservation and and for CPD, but also for earning money. So, so far we've been talking about kind of hearing conservatives, but seeing conservatives, that's also a big deal. So as people may or may not know, I'm a massive fan of YouTube and (laughs) I found myself a YouTubing conservative to talk to. Hello, everyone. My name is Lucilla Ronai, but I go by Lucy. And you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from Australia. Um, I'm a conservator here. I specialize in paper, but I also love working with books. And I'm really passionate about conservation communication. So I'm pretty excited to be on the show. And I currently work at the Australian National Maritime Museum. But in about three weeks, I'll be starting a new job at the National Library of Australia. Oh, that's very exciting. Congratulations. So for those who aren't familiar with your YouTube channel, could you describe the kind of content that you produce there? Well, it's called The Conservation Starter, so I'm trying to be very funny. It's all about conservation, as you might guess from the title, and I'm trying to feature videos that show the behind the scenes of being a conservator, share some tips and tricks, and I'm trying to find the balance between having the general public as an audience and getting them to know what conservation is, but also hopefully providing some content for other conservators that they're interested in as well. What made you want to use that platform in particular? So there's kind of a few reasons. First of all, as you know, conservation isn't really a known of profession in the mainstream. So I've often had to be at a party and tell people that I'm a conservator and then promptly seeing their blank expressions explain what a conservator is. So I guess it was trying to put the profession a bit more out there, especially because I found that there were some other great conservation YouTube channels, but there's not many. And also um, there are some great YouTube videos about conservation, but usually they're hidden amongst 
other videos on like a museum's YouTube page. And so main point was to get conservation out there. Also, I love talking about conservation, so that was definitely a reason why. And also YouTube is the second biggest search engine in the world, second only to Google. So in terms of, yeah, and not many people know this. So in terms of searching for conservation and what it is and search engine optimization, all that kind of stuff, YouTube is huge for that. It's a really powerful algorithm. And you might have found that if you're Googling terms these days, videos are actually showing up in the first page. So it seems like they're actually prioritizing video content when people are searching for answers for things. So I thought that was really cool to try and uh, investigate all that. Aside from conservation not really being known about, there's also often sort of a misrepresentation of conservation or not necessarily even conservation, but there's some pretty extreme restoration videos of people doing things at home with historic objects that mm-hmm. are a bit a bit alarming and a bit in your face. So I was just like, oh, it would be nice to show people that there are other alternatives to completely, you know, stripping back metal artifacts and things like that. So, yeah, that's yeah. Kind, of, <laughs> kind of a combination of all those things was why I wanted to do it. That's a good mission statement. I like it. Um, it's a good point there about the it being a big search engine. I don't. I guess I don't really think about it that way. But you're completely right. And you know, whenever I Google anything, it always suggests videos first. So that's actually a very good point. I like it. Yeah, and it's actually getting even more and more powerful because now as you're searching for things, they're actually positioning the video at the right timestamp. So instead of watching the whole video when it shows up on the Google page, you can actually just start playing it from the search page result and it will start playing from the exact moment when it should answer your question, essentially. It's pretty amazing. Wow. What's been the trickiest thing about um, vlogging, as it's also known? (laughs) Oh, okay. I guess the main problem was when I decided to do a YouTube channel, I didn't actually know how to do any filming or editing. So (laughs) that was a very steep learning curve. So I luckily had a very good friend who was kind of an expert on all those things. Actually, have you ever heard of Museum Dance Off? You know what? Yeah, that rings a bell. Uh, I think we mentioned it on the show way back when, but yes. (gasps) Okay, it it happened years ago. It ran for five years. Basically, it was an international dance competition where you entered by video submission and institutions around the world could just submit a video. And the idea was just show your museum, show your staff, show your collection, do whatever you want, be a bit creative, be a bit fun. And so the Maritime Museum actually did an entry in the last year they ran it. So it was myself and my friend Kate, we did it together. So I uh, danced, so I brought the choreography and um, uh, the music and I was the one yelling out five, six, seven, eight. And she brought all the technological know-how and she directed and did all the filming and all the editing. So basically I watched her do that process. And then a few years later when I decided to do YouTube, I pretty much learned from her. And yeah, so she taught me a lot. So that was one of the big issues. Didn't know how to film or edit. So that's something I'm still working on. And then I guess another big challenge is I've really tried to find a fine balance on what is okay to show, what I should show Mm. in videos and what I should say and what I shouldn't. I guess there is a risk with conservation of maybe showing too much or maybe showing things that people might not quite understand. So if I do show things, I'm trying to give a lot of context, but I'm really not trying to do a, this is a do do it yourself conservation treatment at home. And this is all the steps you need to do. And these are exactly the materials and equipment you need. And I'm trying to work out exactly why I'm reluctant to do that. 
But I think maybe as a conservator, you understand because, you know, some of the treatments we do are quite risky, especially in terms of the cultural heritage. And, you know, we do all the analysis and testing and examination. And often when we're creating a video or we're creating content from social media, we try and include that context, but often people don't find it as interesting and they just skip through to the amazing treatment and don't maybe see all that important information and skills and knowledge. So I think that's a bit of that involved. And also, you know, we use chemicals and sharp tools and machinery. So there is a risk to people as well. So yeah, I'm trying to find that balance. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. Also, people with videos that you put out on YouTube, they do interact with them. Often, uh, people will comment on the videos on YouTube itself or they'll reach out on other social media platforms. And the amount of times I've had to sort of say, oh, this is not something I recommend doing at home and uh, I can give you really great resources on how to handle or store or uh, display your objects or I can you know, give you contact details for private conservators. And yeah, people receive it in varying degrees. Some people are very happy and go, oh, yes, no, of course, we understand. And some people got quite um, rashy that I wouldn't just tell them step by step how to do it. (laughs) And they don't seem to realize that I'm also doing it all in my own spare time as well. So I have to sort of draw a line at some point where I'm just like, yes, I'll give you some information, but I'm I'm not going to, yeah, treat your object for you, I'm afraid. flipping it on its uh, on its head here like so if that's the tricky bit what has been the best thing about making these youtube videos oh, i have to say the connections i've gotten through it like people just reach out to you and it's amazing the contact i've had with people and it's been so well received so yeah conservatives are watching the videos which i'm super super happy and proud that the conservation world thinks the videos are good because you know ultimately i do want conservatives to watch them but yeah, I think my audience is tending towards the general public. So that's really amazing. Um, so yeah, the conversations I've had as a result from the videos has probably been the highlight. And also feeling like it's getting conservation out there more. There's been a lot of people interested in studying conservation or people that are currently students reaching out as well. So it's I feel like the videos are sort of helping inspire people to be conservators as well. So that's pretty amazing. Um, do you have any advice for any conservators out there who might want to give YouTube a go? Definitely. I say start and do it. You do not need to have all the amazing equipment and tools and even really editing knowledge because there are so many resources out there for you to learn. There's actually whole YouTube channels dedicated to how to create a YouTube channel and create YouTube videos. And then phones these days are just so fantastic. And there are again, YouTube videos showing you how to create videos on your phone. So I think yeah, the main barrier is probably just sitting down and making a video. And one thing I will say is if you do want to create video content, YouTube isn't the only platform you can use. There are so many other ones that you can share your videos in. And I just think conservation is such a visual profession. And I think it lends itself really well to videos. So yeah, I just encourage everyone to have a go Yeah, and try it with whatever equipment you have access to. And also in conservation labs, we often have quite good camera equipment or even lights. So you could see if you can do it in a professional setting as well and maybe borrow the equipment you have access to. That's lovely. Thank you so much for talking to the C word today, Lucy. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I was so impressed. I didn't know about her and I listened to the thing and then I watched some videos and I I love her. I love her. I think she's wonderful. They're good. They're good. They are excellent. But the only thing is that it struck me how you have to find your media that you're comfortable Mm. with. And for me, audio 
I love it. I love audio. I could, you know, but I just couldn't be on a screen. I don't know uh, what happens in the um, in the with the Wicked Witch of the West. Doesn't she sort of design? <laughs> I kind of think I think that, that would happen to me on screen. So yeah, she's absolutely brilliant, and she's really found her thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's so sort of artistic as well. The way she puts them together. I love the whole aesthetic. It's great. Absolutely. It's it's just really nice and well balanced. And the before use of before and after and the use of time lapse is just really really lovely. I was very impressed. Mm. And I think that she is managing to hit a different audience on that platform. You you really see that the, the different platforms are offering different audiences different things. And so people gravitate Absolutely. to what they're interested in. And so, you know, you're saying really huge YouTube fan. Well, that would be your default to go to. Uh, for me, I would go to towards always go towards podcasts. And but that's why you're reaching different audiences in these ways. That's what, you know, conservators definitely need to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I liked a bit about us being a very visual profession because that's mm. a really good point. So mm-hmm. I actually, a lot of what we do lends itself really nicely to video work. And it's, you know, sometimes we can be a bit scared about that or yeah. sometimes we might see people do it and we don't agree with how it's done. And, you know, that's that's fair enough. I mean, that happens in anything. I mean, I'm sure there are people who don't like this, you know, and, you know <laughs> that's also fine. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really big issue for conservators as well, because people can be incredibly critical with, you know, the approach to different things. And I think that that's a huge fear, pulling people back from talking about conservation, that thing of, I don't want to be criticised, or I don't want my institution to be criticised, or I don't want... and the, the reality is there's never just one way to do something. And, yeah. yeah. But we are still, I think, hampered by that fear. Not only that, but also kind of hampered by the, I think, the kind of old way of thinking about things that, oh, everything has to be really academic or it has to be mm. really serious or nobody will take you seriously if you do a reaction video it has to be an academic <laughs> article about the properties of a particular oh. adhesive under particular conditions <laughs> no that is not the only way to do things and we've talked about that before in our, like our yeah. um in our publishing episode for example and being on social media and all of that stuff like there it, there isn't just one way to do things and we need to explore different things because we need to stay relevant. Like it's, you know, it's all very nice to think that, you know, this is how we used to do things. So it's how we'll always do things. No, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe there'll always be a time and a place for academic articles, etc. But that's not to say that there isn't a place for blogging and vlogging and podcasts and all sorts of ways of sharing what we do and why we're passionate about it. Otherwise, people don't know that conservatives exist. We stop getting funding and we cease to exist. Does anyone want that? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) I do think as well that YouTube is a particularly good platform because of not just the nature of the other videos that are on there and the other sort of uh, platform users and watchers, I should say, but also because it's so extremely versatile that you can have things that are just, you know, most of her videos were about 10 minutes long. You can have much longer ones and people still sit through them. You can have much shorter ones and you can really describe what you're doing or not, depending on the style of the video. And you can, it's just, 
I was really, I was very impressed with her use of it, but I'm quite inspired by the potential, really. I have to say, I say inspired. <laughs> I'm not going to do it because I feel exactly the same way as you do, Lucy, about being in, speaking in front of a camera and being in front of camera generally. I just, nah, it's not for me. But speaking of video, by the way, um, something that I asked about on social media was if there were any conservatives on TikTok because I, I know oh. um, I don't actually use the platform myself at this point but might do i know of like uh, archaeologists and historians and like heritage people who do use it very successfully so i was just curious if conservatives were doing anything similar and by the way if you are a conservative on tiktok please let me know because that sounds amazing and this kind of spurred you to do an experiment (laughs) it did so actually i am as we speak doing a video um let me just time lapse okay i am doing a video now to put onto tiktok so i saw on twitter jenny saying anyone on tiktok and one woman in the u.s saying me and that's basically it really um a lot of a number of people saying yes but i'm furloughed at the moment because pandemic so there isn't really (laughs) i'm not doing much conservation at the moment so it's not on there so i thought i'm gonna try it and see as as the podcast as it were obviously as me but as the podcast and see what it's about I've not used it before I sort of felt a bit like meh about the platform so I've done some recording audio recording and created this um TikTok account and that's where my I don't like being on video has come from <laughs> you can spend an awful lot of time on different platforms Um, And you have to be really careful. You want people on that platform that are going to have be open to what you're you're talking about. Otherwise, it's a huge time suck. Um, And so it's a kind of a balance to work out uh, which ones are worth your time. And essentially it is if you're not familiar with the platform TikTok, it's for creating really short videos and people use it for um, I've seen some great museum uses with curators saying this is you know five seconds of this information about this object that's really entertaining but a lot of it is kind of so you know what I'm saying is there is serious stuff to it and people talk a lot about it and the the, um, heritage and conservation videos that there are is a lot of time-lapse stuff and so Huckabuck Girl on TikTok, she's really good. She's an objects conservator in the US and she she does all sorts of t- subjects. So it's a TikTok about her life, essentially. I mean, she may describe it differently, so I'm sorry um, if that's wrong. But she does some objects conservation stuff and, you know, political stuff. And, and that seems to work really well. She's got loads of views and followers and stuff. When I found that... Firstly, I think it's safe to say that I don't really, I haven't got the platform yet because I've only just been using it for five days. And a lot of it seems to be like TikTok in jokes. So I thought, well, this would be a great way of sharing, like, you know, as we sometimes do as the podcast. Conservation in jokes have always been a pain in the ass when there's loads of spiders in the pest trap and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure that there are enough conservation users necessarily to share those in jokes so I started during the process sharing you know this is some information about groomstick that kind of thing like this is a little bit of information in a time-lapse video but I don't know really how 
interactive or how teaching or how necessarily interesting it would be because what what we're doing when we're using new media in conservation is trying to advocate for our profession communicate teach educate and it depends so much on what the the reason for people using a social media platform like tiktok or instagram or youtube youtube is for learning a lot of the time whether it's yoga or you know farming in the uk um it's it's a lot of the time for learning but i don't think tiktok is and i don't know whether it could be adapted or whether it's just not its place i'm not sure mm. i mean there's something to be said for something just being entertaining as well you know like there's absolutely uh, may- maybe we lean too heavily on just you know we we need to be teaching people something maybe maybe the thing that we can just teach people is that we exist <laughs> and not in that kind of this world concept, <laughs> yeah. but more of a, this is something you can even go and google now you know like you didn't know this existed maybe that's maybe sometimes that's enough of a takeaway like i wonder who these funny people in lab coats and aprons are like maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe sometimes that's enough you know <laughs> It, whenever I talked about it with Tom, he describes it as fourteen-year-old American kids dancing. Yeah, <laughs> and I know it's it's not just that, but there's an awful lot of that kind of content. Right, so I just had this bright idea to do a C-word podcast TikTok account. I saw the explosion of TikTok as a thing last year, and I thought, nah. It's not for me. I thought that about Instagram as well, and that is for me. So maybe I'll change my mind. But it's a visual media, and all other visual medias work really well for conservation, so we shall see. So I've signed in, and it's asking me to choose my interests. Comedy, sports, <laughs> no, not gaming, not beauty. Daily life, oddly satisfying. Is this for me or for other people? art next videos are personally based on what you want okay oh so it's talking to me about using it and i'm i'm gonna be one of those annoying people that just puts content out and doesn't use this is just an experiment though for now start what okay so i can't play tiktok and record at the same time so it then went on to um all of the instant play videos um in the world and then I found me and create content. So I'm going to go back into the studio now and try and think of some content to create. And I'm not really sure what the... Because I've not ever watched TikTok, really, apart from belly dances on Instagram. We'll see. I might do a bit of research on conservation and see what other kind of heritage stuff there is out there and see if there's a format, but we'll see. Okay, so I'm not really finding much in the way of conservation by searching conservation. I've got a bit more luck searching hashtags, but the hashtag restorer or textile restoration. Um, so I'm going to explore a bit more with that. Maybe art restorer, art conservation. There's loads of museum stuff. Black Country Museum account is really fun. And there's loads of curators talking about particular objects, like histories of objects. Um, so communication and teaching is a big way of communicating museums. The best ones seem to be the ones that are really fun and really visual and take quite a lot of time to do. So I don't know that I have that time. So I'm going to try images of conservation 
and cool music over the top because that seems to also be a thing um it's going to be interesting to see how people find us and stuff so i ran out of time at work i was a bit busy i ran out of time to do a post at work today so i'm just going to post some of the videos i've taken in the past today and tomorrow first observation it takes a lot of time to do these things <laughs> um it seems more like kind of creating a youtube video and then putting it on just a different format rather than how i see instagram stories which is more like this is a video of what i'm doing with an emoji on it you know so what i did was uh, obviously whinge that i didn't have any views so i went through and followed as many people as i found that seemed to post relevant things following the hashtags so I just had a very interesting uh, conversation about TikTok with partner Tom, who is surprisingly up to date with all of this. Um, and firstly, he said some things which made me feel a bit seen along the lines of, is this really a media that you can utilise as a person and in as a person within my community being, uh, as he described, too cardigan wearing given the media the, the the sort of general users of tiktok but we need to communicate in different ways with different people you know what's better than and communicating with with a totally different audience of very young people all over the world blah 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 and the other thing he said that was really interesting was it's not really a media that one can interact with very easily i wonder if something along those lines means that twitter for example lends itself really well to interacting and communicating about conservation whereas tiktok and maybe instagram doesn't so much because it's very much this is what i have done but you can't really share quite so easily we'll be talking about this but i have some i have some you know questions about what's required of a media to be involved in for conservation but the main thing that came out of what tom was saying was you can't really do it properly if you don't consume it yourself so me trying to create engaging and TikToky like media is pretty ambitious considering I've never looked at it but it seems very much you know this is the this is the meme to do and this is the in joke essentially I've tried to take Tom's advice with using known TikTok memes um, so I had a cool video of myself and my colleague raising a banner, uh, Amalgamated Society of Watermen and Lightermen, Why Not the Wellerman Sea Shanty song. So I put that on and I thought it would look quite good. I don't know if anyone's going to get the joke, but they might, you never know. Right, day two, TikTok. What have we got? So I am on, oh, 506 views on the first video I did, the one I shared to Twitter. Only nine views for the little mini video um, and 362 views on the Wellerman meme song on it. I don't know why it's more popular than the other one. Maybe because it's got the, I don't know, are they are they searched by the song that's on there? Or maybe it's because it's a kind of dynamic looking big object moving video? I'm not sure. Okay, as an experiment, I've just changed my TikTok bio to add as well as the Conservatives podcast, adding, ask me about museum and heritage conservation. 
So I, I don't know what's going on with why some videos are watched and some videos aren't. The video that I just posted, I posted earlier, had no music at all. Um, and it's got 300 plus watches. And I don't understand why, if it's not music uh, or video length. But I've also changed tactics slightly that I've, I've sort of struggled to find much of a conservation community I've decided to change the attitude of my posts to being less just this is an in-joke about conservation and more this is what we do in conservation without sort of assuming knowledge. So it's day three. God, it's been a long week. Uh, and I'm still going with TikTok. The interest is waning a little. I was supposed to do some videoing when I was in the studio today because um, that was the whole point. But I just found it very time consuming to even set up um and then I needed access to something so I was sitting on the table and I thought oh is that unprofessional probably and I was doing a very very long line of stitching and when I say very long I mean like three and a half meters of stitching and I thought oh, I even sped up that isn't going to be super interesting to watch <laughs> I've got plenty of other things to post but the idea was to post something of what I was doing at the moment Okay, I just listened back to the last little bit of recording and I think I was very tired that day. Since we had our chat during recording, I was very inspired, as I said, during the recording by the YouTuber. And I think that I do, though it doesn't sound it, I do like TikTok as a form of communicating conservation. But I think I just need to let go of the idea that people need to be interested in the same way that we're interested because people will be interested. I do think it's still very positive and it's also, it is quite fun. I think I'm going to keep going with it. But the thing that has occurred to me most is that it is so time consuming. And with what Lucy was saying about her YouTubing, it, you just have to decide to put the time in. And I don't know whether personally I can be bothered because even on my own social media, if it's even if it's just posting a video of my cat on my Instagram stories, sometimes I just can't be bothered to put the time into making sure I've spelt the, you know, captions right. So it might be that I just don't personally have the... <laughs> with social media very much so I'm gonna keep it going as my stupid dumbass conservation humor outlet and just make sure Jenny doesn't mind TikTok do I like it do I not like it the big mainstream where people are earning loads of money from it is a very different beast to what people can get from it for their other interests um, and non-viral content and I'm just going to keep posting and hopefully that will encourage other conservators to post about what they do. So, um, yeah, thumbs up. The reason we came up with this idea for an episode topic when we we're planning out the season was because we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic. And I had the sort of feeling that conservators were sort of... I don't know that this is connected. This I don't think it's affected by what conservatives want to do because we always want to branch out into creating more media. But possibly the idea that whilst we're sort of sitting furloughed at home on the sofa, as I've spent the last 12 months doing, that I have more of an appetite essentially for watching, for watching conservation videos online in whatever respect or, or interacting on Twitter because I feel so sort of out of touch and in need of you know some kind of contact with my field 
And I wonder if anyone has any thoughts about that in terms of not necessarily using social media as a way of learning, but feeling connected. But that's what uh, COVID, hasn't it? It's really opened us to new media. It's made us use all these platforms that, I mean, as much as we all might have used Teams or, or Zoom occasionally, now we're using them all the time. And yeah. so if nothing else has come out of this pandemic, it's that, it, it has made us explore these other options and say, you know, I for social distancing reason, I am on my own. And, you know, where can I get advice and help from? I, I think that's that's got to be the, you know, one of the few things that's come out of all this. Yeah, absolutely. So since we're talking about seeing and hearing conservatives, I thought we, we would be amiss to not mention the more old school approach of TV and radio. I don't know if any of you have had to be on the radio, but it's I, I don't enjoy being on the radio, even though I like audio. <laughs> but I think it's possible because I'm not in control and I do oh, ramble yeah. a lot. And I feel like, especially if it's like ad-libbing and kind of like, they're just going to ask me any old question, I, I kind of panic and start babbling. And uh, <laughs> not a good choice for the radio, guys. But I have had to, when we've just had radio people wandering around a museum and, you know, it's been a case of, okay, just make polite conversation when they come to you. And it's like, okay. I distinctly remember being thrilled to talk about conservation and then being in my lab. And then they asked me a very specific question about something on, on the bench and I completely panicked and went, I don't actually know what kind of bird that is because I've completely forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, drop the ball, drop the ball. It's the not edited thing that I, I cannot stand. I don't like it at all. Yeah. But I dance in public, live all the time i used to before the pandemic so but why you, what's the problem with that? that don't you like you no i don't know i don't i i just i turn up in a restaurant in my in my costume and people put some music on for me and then i just dance about there's no plan okay fair enough then <laughs> <laughs> but why do why am i fine with that but i'm not fine with anything unedited but I think it's ingrained in you that the dance moves, the the music, it's it's ingrained in you. So it's some kind of muscle memory. So yeah, really that, that yeah. But stuff goes wrong, oh, and maybe, I'm not bothered. Going back to um, radio, I think there's you know radio is because it it sort of has slightly more of a gatekeeper feeling to mm. it. It's kind of quite traditional in format. But I do think it offers a lot of opportunities to conservators that we don't necessarily use. So yeah, I, I've had dabbled in this because another thing that I do is write. And one, I, I write novels. Um, and the mm. one of the things I found is that when I, because I was hoping to promote my book, and I approached the media with, you know, discussions about the book to try and get the name out there they jumped at the conservation that was what they were interested in and so oh. actually I got interview after interview you know and actually ended up not even mentioning the books and they loved it and actually if I had more time to have sort of you know approached more I think you know the radio shows are looking for content just like everyone else and I think somehow we're a bit more afraid of approaching that slightly more traditional form of media but actually they are looking for it they really are so I encourage conservators to to not think just about new media but also about old media that's so cool 
we are trying to talk about seeing and hearing conservatives, so it does totally count. So I think that's great. <laughs> uh, I thought we'd just finish today with um, talking about conservatives on TV, because that's not super common, but right. it does happen. And uh, something that's quite popular on uh, on TV is the repair shop. They have loads of seasons, uh, and I've been watching them all. Um, <laughs> How I- are they? Can we, I, I haven't watched any. Oh, I watched a bit, and I was kind of ah and then i had to stop not because i hated it <laughs> i have to say not because i hated it yeah i think my like initial reaction was like oh they're in a barn oh i wonder how drafty mm. that is i wonder if they have pets <laughs> and like in- initially just like immediately leaning into this kind of conservative mindset of like being like oh yeah. Ooh, i wonder how they handle this and that and but like that's that's all background details like it's i, I just need to disconnect that and enjoy the journey mm. but we mm. should say that the repair shop you know it is a, a mixture of conservatives and craftspeople there mm-hmm. is a heavy emphasis on restoration not conservation but that doesn't necessarily detract from it i feel like it is a great celebration of skills and also the the values that we try to look after you know what's important about this can you tell me about the history of it but not just in a kind of this was my grandpa's and i really love my grandpa obviously you do (laughs) you know but in the kind of sense of oh well these scuffs are really important because that's the science of its life that's the use or this is my teddy bear i gnawed its ear off when i was three i don't actually want the ear replaced you know it's all of these things like what's important about this what is it you want this to be and those are the sorts of conversations that we either have or should have um, mm. with anyone who approaches us to do anything, whether that's, you know, in-house or commercially. And notably, the people on the show that are conservators do highlight the things of, um, for example, okay, so in conservation, we wouldn't do this. I'm doing this because, or there's like tantalizing glimpses of and in conservation, this is something that we do and they don't show the whole process, but they show a little bit and like enough to kind of convey expertise and specialism. And I, I guess I, I quite like that. Um, Maybe the balance isn't quite right for my tastes. I'm a conservative, right? So I'm always going to fret about what are you doing to that? But that's... <laughs> there are restorers in this workshop that's that's kind of the thing mm. you know like it's it's a mixture of craftspeople and conservatives so it's never going to be purely one thing you've got this sort of narrative of everything going perfectly which i keep yeah. noticing so there's no like oh that that hasn't worked or um which in cons- that's again it's like sort of perpetuating this myth that we none of us make any mistake mm. yeah there is a, a kind of rosy glow over it, over the treatments. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, we've got to remember that this is broadcast TV. So there is that. I think it is a good show. Uh, genuinely, yeah. I think it is good. And I think it is raising awareness of uh, skills, you know, and the fact that experts exist. It does really highlight that we need people who are good at these things. I'm Lucia Scalisi, and I'm a conservator of um, easel paintings. And I also appear on the repair shop as the, we're called experts, as the expert paintings conservator. And I'm the only one that they call a conservator because I asked to be called a conservator as opposed to a restorer. So that's me. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background? 
Yeah, I trained a long time ago in Newcastle on their conservation of easel paintings course. I actually trained when it was at Gateshead Technical and the Tech College has beautiful grounds and it had a beautiful Victorian house there. Did two years there and before I finished or at the end of my second year, I got um, a contract at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. So I literally packed up my gear at the end of term, drove it all to my (laughs) long-suffering parents and carried on down to London and shared a, a flat for a week whilst I looked for accommodation. And yeah, that was that was straight away. So I worked at the V&A for 12 years. And then I left and uh, it was a good time because I'd been working on a project in India. I, the, the V&A had seconded me to this fantastic project in Calcutta. And ultimately, I ended up working on the project through the seasons for about 15 years we usually went out in the winter season because that was the coolest weather. It's way too hot to work on paintings. They just become so f- floppy and unhappy in the, <laughs> in the heat and humidity, as do the conservators. So that was my leap from training to the Victoria and Albert Museum and then into uh, private practice, which is what I still do now. Wow. How did you get to be involved with the repair shop? Okay, so from from the early 2000s until about 2010, I was also doing some teaching at the Conservation Studies course at London City and Guilds in, in Kennington. I can't remember exactly, but say around 2010, it was a private view. They have private views, you know, at the end of years for the MA students and what have you, and Mm. also within the art school. And I was down there for the private view one evening and there was a a lady there and she had a TV camera. So I was chatting to her and she said, oh yeah, I'm here because I'm working for some company and we're looking to do something on conservation. So we sat down and we had a glass of wine because it was a private view (laughs) evening and we just chatted. And then the next day, the TV company contacted me and and offered me this uh, pilot program that they were doing. And so long story short, I did that over one summer and then it went out actually quite a long time afterwards. It went out on on BBC Two. It was called The Restoration Roadshow. And it was actually quite well received. But the the premise for that program was they have a bunch of conservators or mostly restorers, actually, because there were a lot of furniture people and some clock people and some ceramicists and things. The, The premise was that they get people to bring their objects in, then they get conserved. So I did the paintings and then they take them to auction and sell them. And I said, you know what, guys, it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. Any work I do does not make the object more valuable it makes it better to handle and to look at maybe it's not going to be any more valuable than when it was brought in so that was a hard lesson for them because obviously the auctioning side of things did not work as part of the remit and one of the directors that was on that program cut through to 2016 27 well 2016 actually he worked for another production company and they came up with the repair shop which was a completely different premise no money involved at all in terms of values of objects or whatever it worked and that's what you see on the repair shop so regardless of any monetary value the value is the story really that's that's why it works and it it relates to every single person everywhere we did the first program in january 2017 so this is its fifth year 
it's slowly sort of changing. I mean, lots of really fantastic experts from so many different fields come in. You know, we've had, for example, Coopers, you know, that make the barrels uh, in. We've had, we've recently had a, a person who's a proper cobbler. I can't tell you what he was doing, but that will come out on a program later this year. So, uh, and obviously so many different musical instruments, you know, from the yeah. Indian sitar and, you know, European instrument. I mean, it's just fantastic fantastic and clocks that you wouldn't believe it's making people also think about their connection to their past and their history yeah. and actually you know seeking out the stuff that's been at the bottom of the cupboard or in the loft for the last 50 years because they considered it broken and they couldn't do anything with it my desire would be that it really encourages people to look outwards to actually look for people that can conserve whatever it is that they've got do you have a favorite thing that you've worked on as part of the show well, I tend to like most of the things I work on, but there's something coming. I'm not promoting it, but I obviously I'm going to promote it by talking <laughs> about it. But on Wednesday next week, the 21st, it's the uh, part of a, a whole new series of objects are coming out. And mine is is the, uh, you know, prime slot one because it's it's so important and so interesting. And it was a real find, and it, it's a painting, obviously. And so when that came in, I knew at 10 paces, and I thought, oh, my word, this is a find, this is a find. And the funny thing is that you kind of, you know it as a conservator, and you know, you, you recognize sort of details in it that are sort of giveaways, and I could tell, but nobody else can see it. You know what I mean? But yes. that's yeah, yeah. So I think the one that's coming out next week is is really special. I mean, I've loved all the paintings I've done and they've all had different stories to tell. Mm. I think for me, the stories, because when I'm sat there in the barn working away in the background and somebody brings something in, you know, it's like listening to the story firsthand. So it's like permanent story time down there. <laughs> oh, I love it. I have such a silly question that it's such a conservative question. Do you bring all your own gear or is this stuff that's supplied? Yeah, no, I have to bring everything down there myself. It, things like my solvents, well, I get them to order them so that I don't have to transport them. Yeah, I usually yeah. take my own stuff down. And so they, they now order the solvents. And we've got plenty of health and safety in place. And, you know, we've got the um, solvent cupboards and fire cupboards and things like that. So um, I keep the solvents down there. But things like my essentials are the hot spatula. Obviously, I have a toolbox with all my gubbins in. So I have, you know, nylon gossamer film and, you know, my filling tools and my beautiful Series 7 Windsor & Newton brushes and, you know, for retouching. I have I take my own pigments down there. I take my museum vac down there, compressor and spray unit, which is fairly compact, but that's a fairly, you know, bulky thing. So, so those kind of items I take down yeah. myself. Do you feel like the show strikes a good balance between restoration and conservation or that it explains the differences? No. <laughs> that was very honest. Not for me anyway, not for me. Although I have been banging on about it for such a long time and I do talk to different people about, not in a preachy way, but in like, oh, I use this and it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's great and I think it'll really work on your, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And also I do bang on about, you know, less is more really do less, really do less. But I, I, I certainly now hear when um, contributors come in with their stuff, they, they'll say things now like, I don't want it to look brand new. So yeah. I think that that's come from me because it's like, you don't, it doesn't have to look brand new to be like, they're good. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think that was the thing um, that 
I, I can't remember if it's in the later season's intros, but you know, the intro in the first season was like a woman marveling at it. It looks like new. And I, immediately I was like, no. <laughs> there you go. So that's been a slow burn. So it's, but definitely people are picking up on that now. And they like sort of the less is more mantra. And also they like the idea of things not looking brand new. So yeah, I feel I've had a little bit of a, an influence on that. Um, is there a lot that we don't get to see on screen? Oh, matters. For every jo- object that's on, because I, I can never keep up with how they're editing the show and putting different things together and chopping and changing oh, things. Course, yeah. So if if I'm on, on one of the shorter shows for sort of like 10 minutes, for every 10 minutes you're talking about two days of filming in terms of hours. Gosh. But it, it does go on over a, a week or two weeks, depending on what the object is. So, yeah, an awful lot of filming goes into every minute of the TV. So yeah. it's quite tense from that point of view. Uh, what's been the trickiest thing about being part of a TV show like this? Hanging around. There's a lot hanging around, waiting. Yeah, and, and the other thing is the environment of the place. It's at the Wheeldon Downland Open Air Museum, which is just outside Chichester. Mm. It's absolutely fantastic place and it's a real barn it's a real late 18th century thatched roof barn very beautiful but the whole museum is in a dip in the landscape oh my word it's so damp down there varnishing has been my most difficult aspect on the show the dampness and and also the dirt it's pretty mucky in there i mean it's kept clean but the very nature of the space and all the different people that are working in it yeah is very dusty it's funny that you say that because I visited the the open air museum, you know, as a student, like 12 years ago or something, you know, a long time ago. I had this vivid memory of it just being kind of cold and damp. So as soon as I knew where it was, I was like, whoa, really? That's, yeah. that's a choice. <laughs> I'm beautiful, but fascinated by the choice of location and stuff. And I thought there, there will be some practical difficulties with that for sure. Oh, for sure. You wouldn't really want to workshop in a barn. And the barn is a, it is a barn. And it's not so much now, but in the early days before we were there, much of the time, it actually has a separate life, you know, as a, as a sort of barn for the museum. And they have different types of workshops in there. But the interior of it is kitted out specifically for the show. We have a couple of great set designers, one of whom is Dom, who's on the show. He's he's the metal person expert who's oh. outside, but he does all the signage for everything that's in the barn. He did the repair oh. shop sign, very talented. But he he kit, he and uh, another lady who's a set designer, they do the kitting out of the barn. It's so funny because uh, me as a conservator and my other half as someone who's done a bit of filmmaking, we were both immediately like, that's going to be a nightmare to light, you know, both for filming and for working. You know, it's just like... Well spotted. Well, initially the first year, if you look at some of the early programmes, the first ones went out in 2017. And it, it looks to me, if you see anything from then, it looks to me like it was filmed in the 1970s. You know, it's it really does. dark, really quite harsh lighting and every you know it was just odd and now they have people in that specialize and they've got the the right lighting for it what's been the best thing about being on the show so i think the the idea of change and and welcoming that in your life and and this is an opportunity and it's something that's been very different I, i just think the challenge of it and doing something that's different yeah that's really good do you have any advice for conservatives who would maybe like to be involved with something like this or be on TV? 
I mean, I would like to think that there are going to be more programs like this. I'd certainly like to get more of the technical history of objects out there. So I think there's sort of room for growth in that. And I would hope that within the television world, things like that are going to be happening. But if you don't like changing, you don't like that kind of pressure, it's not for you. But in terms of, I suppose I'm pretty lucky that it, it just cropped up. I didn't go out hunting for it at all. I mean, I never anticipated it. It just happened that I was at the night of the private view at City and Guilds that it all kicked off. And then there was a, huge, a long gap between that happening and then the repair shop coming up. So I don't know. I don't really have any specific advice other than to say it's not for the faint-hearted. I think you have to be fairly confident in what you do to be able to to stand the pressure of it. That's good advice in and of itself. I think that I think that is helpful. Well, thank you so much for talking to the C word today. I've really enjoyed it. It's been thrilling. Thanks, Jenny. If you're enjoying the C word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Lucy Branch, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about... Actually, we're not quite sure. Uh, don't worry though, there will be a next episode. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. This is the nature of podcasting. Yeah, from yeah it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Also, my, my table makes this noise. Oh, <laughs> so I'm having noise. to be really quiet. <laughs>